0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Samuel Helfand and his book, Compulsion in Religion, Saddam Hussein, Islam, and the Roots of Insurgencies in Iraq. It's a fascinating book that is relevant not only to an understanding of Iraq, the resistance during the rule of Saddam Hussein, and the nature of the primarily religious resistance and insurgencies since the U.S. invasion in 2003 and Saddam Hussein's fall, but also, more fundamentally, to the relationship between the state and religion in autocratic and illiberal countries, something that plays out in multiple countries today, including Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. Samuel Helfont, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a It's a pleasure to have you. I enjoyed your book. Perhaps we can start with your giving us a sense of how you got to studying the Middle East and Iraq in particular.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, so I, I was in the U.S. Navy. Um, I, I signed up uh, right out of high school, um, I guess not really knowing what I was getting into, uh, because I, I, I signed up in 1998 and then left in, uh, in 1999, the summer of 1999. Um, obviously it was a different world, uh, back then. The idea of going into a major war or into the middle East just simply wasn't on, on the radar. But of course things changed, uh, during my time in, and in 2003, I, I found myself on an amphibious assault ship, uh, with a bunch of Marines, uh, heading towards Iraq Uh, For the the invasions, Uh, I was part of a small uh, intelligence collection team. I did uh, signals intelligence that was uh, sent to that ship. We worked out of a small van that was welded to the back of the deck. Uh, And the Marines went into Iraq with the initial invasion, and we were right there along the coast, seeing the shock and awe and all those sort of things going on around us. So obviously that left an impression on me. It also left me with a number of different questions. Um, we came back that summer. My four years was up, and I, I transferred to the reserve, planning to just simply, I guess, move on with my life, um, leave it all behind. But uh, it didn't really work out that way. It was sort of just kept nagging me in the background. Uh, I started studying the Middle East, studying more about it, but sp- you know, going back there on my own, spending more time, learning the languages, the history, uh, culture, whatnot. And uh, I began a PhD at Princeton in Near Eastern Studies in 2009, Um, just about the time, it was right around that time that two sets of Iraqi archives uh, opened up. One was the state archives that were taken by the U.S. military um, in 2003, and the other was a set of uh, files from the Ba'ath Party sectariat, talking about something in the range of 10 million pages of Arabic uh, files that were taken by uh, that were taken by Iraqi dissidents in 2003, and in 2009, both sets of these archives opened up. They were a sort of unprecedented source for Middle Eastern history, for recent Middle Eastern history. Uh, so it seemed to be fitting that I would I would dig in, and uh, it all sort of came together. So that's what happened.
0: Well, Iraq is an experience that doesn't leave you very easily. In many ways, correct me if I'm uh, if I'm wrong, but while your book is really a study of Iraq and, and, and how Saddam Hussein dealt with religion and harnessed it, it also is in a broader sense about religious legit- legitimization of regimes. Uh, yes,
1: th- that's right. Um, when I began this project, I was you know really interested in uh, uh, Islamic intellectual history. Um, the way it interplayed in in, in modern politics. Um, And I began looking into that, you know, um, that subject in these Iraqi records. Um, And what I realized fairly quickly was that there weren't really any good theories that sort of explained what I was seeing um, in in the literature. Uh, You know, there weren't good theories in the literature that explained what I was seeing in these records. Um, So I had to sort of rethink what I was doing uh, more broadly, um, and, and rethink uh, how states interact with um, with religious leaders, with the religious landscapes of their country, with Islamic intellectual um, tradition. I guess there was a few things that, um, in particular, uh, one was just simply the idea or this strict divide that I think we have in the West uh, or Western scholars who study the Middle East that that divides very. Neatly, you know, secular Arab nationalism and um, and religious Islamism, uh, and these lines are a lot blurrier than than we often portray them. Uh, the religious leaders in Islamic groups often have Arab inclinations, Arab nationalist inclinations, as well as being Islamists and secular nationalists like Saddam Hussein. Uh, are often quite religious and, you know, use their religion very publicly. They wear it on their sleeve. Uh, and it's a very important part of their um, their ideology. The other thing that I noticed, sort of broader and theoretically, which applies to other states, is that the way that states or people like Saddam or regimes like the Baptist regime in Iraq um, use religion, the way they relate with the religious landscape, um, are – is different than how it's often explained. So normally it's explained that religious leaders sort of reach, sorry, authoritarian leaders, non-democratic leaders, reach out to the religious landscape out of weakness. So um, if they become too weak, they sort of have to make amends with the religious leaders, even if it's against their ideology. Um, That's not what I found Saddam doing. Saddam uh, didn't make amends on you know, with religious leaders on, on their terms, but on his terms. Uh, and he waited until he was strong enough to, um, to begin reaching out to them and begin co-opting those religious leaders and using religion in his, and his ideology, which is something, I guess it's fundamentally different than the way it's most, most of the time it's portrayed, uh, at least in the middle East, in the middle East, it's often seen as, as religious leaders sort of acquiescing to, uh, or sorry, uh, authoritarian leaders acquiescing to religious leaders. Uh, this wasn't the case in Iraq.
0: Right. Um, I I wonder whether you've at all done um, in, in, in writing the book, um, which you've been working into the book, but may have done in, in terms of your research, uh, in, w- in what way, for example, uh, the way Saddam Hussein approached all of this differed from uh, other countries where, there was a very strict control of religion like in Egypt or Turkey.
1: Yeah. So there are different cases, right? Saddam Hussein I think is, is different than, uh, than a number of places, uh, in terms of the way that he ruled. Right. Um, and I guess the best way to think about it is whether or not, so someone like Mubarak in Egypt, he really didn't try to, um, compel religious leaders to take a certain view. He just wanted them not to say certain things, right? As long as they didn't cross a certain red line, um, they were okay, right? And, you know, there was, the Muslim Brotherhood existed. It was illegal under Mubarak, but everyone knew who the Muslim Brotherhood leaders were. Everyone knew what mosques they were in, whatnot, right? There was no sort of attempt to um, present a different narrative about Islam and uh, and impose that. On the religious landscape, I think that's changed under Sisi, right? Under Sisi, now they are seem to be trying to do that uh, in Egypt. And Saddam was a lot more like Sisi in that regard. Um, he didn't tolerate differing opinions. He didn't tolerate different uh, ideas, and he didn't simply have red lines, but he was compelling religious leaders to take a certain stance that was, uh, or to adopt a certain. Narrative and a certain interpretation of Islam, which was a Baathist interpretation of Islam, right? So he um, he wanted them to sort of buy into the idea that Islam is a kind of Arab religion to downplay any kind of sectarian inclinations um, and you know uh, glorify the Baathist regime in understanding of of uh, of Islam, right? So this is different than maybe someone like Mubarak did. Now it's often hard to understand how religious uh, or how different leaders around around the uh the region do this um because we just simply don't have the records right uh, and in iraq we do so there's sort of asymmetry there and trying to do a, a comparative study but you can get the, the general outlines um and see that you know in some cases definitely there are um you know, political leaders who try to simply impose red lines that religious leaders can't cross. And in other cases, there are, um, political leaders who try to impose a certain interpretation of Islam and make that the mandatory interpretation. I guess, you know, Turkey under Atatürk probably fell into the latter category with Saddam and Sisi in that, you know, there were certain interpretations that simply weren't acceptable and there were, you know, certain interpretations that were the right way. Um, uh, I think Iran probably falls in that category uh, as well under under the uh,
0: the current regime. I mean, in a lot of ways, that kind of control, which is what what Saddam did, but what also uh, the Turks have done and other countries do, is basically by dictating, uh, if not the text of sermons, then in any case the themes of sermons or the the, the parameters within which sermons have to. Um, with which servers have to comply, you see that now being implemented in Pakistan too.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, But it's a lot more, and and this is where I think the Iraqi record are revealing. Now, we don't know how much this is the extent in other cases, but I imagine it is. Um, It's a lot more than simply saying, this is what you have to say, right? Um, Because how do you know that they're actually going to say it? And how do you know, and then you get the problem of if they say it in public, how do you know what they're going to say behind closed doors, right? Um, what religious leaders are going to say behind closed doors. So you end up with this sort of spiraling authoritarianism or totalitarianism or whatever we're going to call it, uh, where you have to not just have certain ideas that you impose on the religious landscape, but you have to alter the religious landscape. You have to make sure you have the right people in the mosques, uh, the right type of religious leader who's willing to sort of toe the line and you make sure that the wrong type of people aren't in there, right? So if you're trying to not just draw red lines, but actually impose a narrative about religion, uh, you have to make sure that, um, you have the right type of religious leader in the mosque. And this takes time, right? This You have to sort of weed out the bad, uh, and, uh, put in, put in the right people in the right places, uh, and that can't be done immediately. That's going. That's a project that takes you know years, if not decades, um, to do. Uh, but it's critical if you're going to try to control narratives about religion uh, in in any country.
0: I, I I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get at is obviously each country is different and, 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 and has and things are done in a, in a specific way. But on, on more general terms, you know, I, a lot of this happens maybe not as, as forcefully and as imposed uh, or maybe not as harshly as things happened in Iraq. But um, you have in a lot of countries uh, religious education where religious uh, officials... Uh, Imams, and so forth, are trained, um, whether it's hatib schools in Turkey uh, or Al-Haz- al-Azhar in Cairo. Um, and you have that whole discussion, of course, for example, in, uh, in Europe about training of Imams so that they comply with, uh, uh, with a broader, more liberal culture. And so I'm wondering whether you know, what we're talking about with Saddam is one specific application of that.
1: Yeah. Uh, yes, I think uh, that's probably right. Um, you know, it comes with Saddam, You who know, was well known for being you know, quite a tyrant, you know, and he would use force uh, more readily than a lot of other leaders. But I guess you're right. The basic concept is the same. And I think you're right. Hitting on religious education is, is the right, um, the right way to do this this is why it takes so long because you know you really need to if you really want to have people that um, that are going to toe the line on your interpretation of religion you have to find them uh, early and you have to train them uh, and observe them over many years before you can you know uh, trust them fully to do this um, so it's not just about educate at least in Iraq and I imagine in other places too it's not just about education but it's also about when you, when, you, when you have control of these sort of seminaries, whether they are more traditional um, religious seminaries or if they are, uh, you know, universities that happen to have a sort of Islamic law faculty or something like that, uh, you also control who gets into those faculties and who gets into these courses, which is very important, too, because it lets you weed out certain people uh, from certain backgrounds who simply won't be able to gain those credentials. Um Present themselves as a the sort of religious authority later on.
0: I, um, you framed your book and and and, and your your writing of this history as the bathification of the religion, and I I sort of struggle with the term more because it, it's to me almost implies an ideological change, whereas we're dealing with texts uh that are multi-interpretable so you can interpret them in sectarian ways you can interpret them in non-sectarian ways. you can t- interpret them in more literal ways and in, in less literal ways uh, uh, you know because it seems to me that what this is really about is about political control and about getting out a message in the case of Saddam, a non-sectarian message, a a nationalist message, a message that's supportive of the regime. Uh, But it doesn't fundamentally change the ideology of the faith or or the theology of the faith, but it more gives it one interpretation uh, within a broad scala of possible interpretations. Um, Yeah, I guess, you know,
1: you could put it that way now the, the term bathification isn't my term that's that, that's that's a, a um that's a bathist term that you find in the documents tabaith is uh, mm-hmm. what they say in, in, in uh in arabic and it's their sort of you know i guess if you want to call it a grand strategy towards ruling the country that's what it that's what they they describe as their strategy which is you know to sort of impose bathism and bathist ideas um on on right to bathize the uh different social institutions um of the country and uh they do this although they don't always use this term bathification by ethan uh when dealing with religious landscape um they they basically do the same thing to the religious landscape that they're doing to other other um aspects of society um which is why i use the term because that's how they themselves describe it so or you know that's how they understand what, what what's going on. Um, in some sense, you're right. There are different um, interpretations, right? Uh, there was never a unified, single interpretation of um, of Islam, but the bath clearly have their own as well. Um, and it's not an interpretation that was necessarily common, uh, especially maybe it was popular in some in some sectors of society, but it wasn't sort of common among religious leaders to hold this Ba'athist view of of the religion, which looked at it really as an Arab religion for the Arab people, um, not as a sort of universal religion. Um, And it's an interpretation of the religion that downplayed uh, large parts of what you know are are typically part you know uh, encompassed by different interpretations of Islam, so sectarian identities, you know, differences in theology or or um, or interpretation that um, downplays you know most elements of Islamic law. Um, so while yes, it is one interpretation among many, isn't it? It's certainly true that I would I would say you know as a non-Muslim you know I'm not here to judge um, one interpretation or the other or say this one is right or that one is is wrong. I would say it was probably an uncommon interpretation, and this type of bathification was used to make it into a sort of hegemonic, or, or to attempt to at least make this into a hegemonic understanding that this this became the standard the norm uh, for society. That was their project, and that was the. Uh, you know, the project of bathification of religion, to take something that was maybe existing somewhere along the fringes um, and and turn it into the dominant sort of normal understanding of Islam.
0: Um, You at one point uh, basically spoke about religion as being one of numerous social institutions, which of course it is. But I'm wondering whether in the case of certainly the Arab world um, and uh, a fair number of non-Arab Muslim countries, in some ways Islam within those social uh, institutions takes on a um, a, uh, a special position simply because uh, it's something that uh, a majority of the population adheres to not only... Simply in terms of nominal identity, but in terms of daily practice, in one way or another, and uh, because Islam is so much—you know—the legal code is so much a way of life, rather than simply um, do's and don'ts. And yes, I. And, and so, in that sense, whether you're a secular Arab leader or a secular, secular Muslim leader, Islam and religion is something you have to deal with and take into account and factor in what how and what you do how, how you do things and what you do in ways for example, that Western secular uh, governments and societies don't have to.
1: Um, to some, I think it's a different a difference uh, it's not a difference in kind, I would say in the West, uh, at least up until recently, maybe now, These days, religion is playing a much smaller role, especially, you know, in Western Europe. Um, But traditionally, I mean, if you look at the classic works on totalitarianism and authoritarianism in Europe, um, they all had to also deal with this religious issue. Now, I agree that this is something that's probably in in the Middle East. Um, But it's a difference in scale as opposed to a difference in in kind, at least, you know, From the mid-20th century and earlier in in europe uh i mean when the soviets attempted to impose a sort of atheist uh, ideology on on russia um they couldn't do it you know it it was it was really difficult for them to do that was one of the the, the most difficult parts of their project uh you know the same with the nazis i mean i have a few quotes in there in the beginning uh dealing with with different type of regimes all over the world that, that had to to confront this issue Um, And I think there's a a few things about religion in general, uh, which Islam certainly falls into this category, that make it difficult for authoritarian rulers. One, it's a different type of authority that's outside the the scope of the state, right? So um, it's not political authority. It's a religious authority, and some people are going to follow religious authority, you know, uh, rather than political authority. This is a problem if you want to be the only game in town as an authoritarian uh, ruler religion is often transnational as well, right? So um, there is no, West, you know, Treaty of Westphalia kind of thing, uh, as there are for political leaders, right, where each state is sovereign and, and you know, the laws are decided within those borders of that sovereign state. Um, you know, you could be in Iraq and your religious leadership is, you know, the Ayatollah you're following is in Iran, right? So then it's very difficult for a political leader to sort of control uh, what's going on in the neighboring state. This is the same thing that European leaders um, dealt with, right? So, you know, you're you're in Poland, but the Pope is in in Rome, and you have to deal with that somehow. And it's very difficult to deal with that um, because many of the tools in your toolkit simply don't work uh, when you start talking in transnational terms, right? You can't simply arrest them; they're not in your country. Um, so this causes all sorts of uh, of problems for authoritarian leaders, and I think it's it's no Coincidence that uh, you know religion has been one of the, the more difficult issues for uh, authoritarian leaders around the world. Now, this is, I think, particularly the case in um, in the Middle East, uh, as as you mentioned, because Islam has traditionally played a much more prominent role in society, uh, in politics. Islam, I would argue, while well, not want to be an essentialist here and say that it's uh, you know necessarily has to be political or that there is a sort of political interpretation of of Islam that is is, right or dominant or anything like that. But there is a more robust political tradition uh, within Islam than there are in several other religions. Um, Islam has a lot more to say about politics than, say, Protestantism, Um, you know, Protestant Christianity. So, you know, uh, leaders in the Arab world and the Muslim world more generally have have had to, to deal with this. Uh, and they've had to incorporate it into their ideologies in some ways. It's it's a central element, I would say, of of basically any political ideology in the Middle East is going to be the religious
0: question in a way that simply is not uh, in the West. And that's compounded, of course, by particularly in the Middle East, uh, by on the one hand uh, that as uh, either various ideologies have failed to produce or um, like in the case of Iran, the mosque was really the only one place where you, where you could to some degree could speak out, uh, where then religion sort of becomes or, or, or religious institutions, whether those are religious leaders or, or specific mosques or, you know, legal or underground, what becomes sort of uh, institutions or or vehicles of opposition or expression of dissent.
1: Yes, that's, uh, that's right. I mean, it's not only, again, it's not only in the Middle East we think about, you know, the Catholic church in Poland, right. Um, Or, you know, there's a number of other cases where where we could talk about this outside the Middle East, but again, in the Middle East, it's been particularly pronounced, right. Um, And there, I can't really think of a, of a Middle Eastern leader who ever, wanted to present themselves as an opponent of islam right or an opponent of of religion um at least in the arab world right um they usually bend over backwards to show that they are you know good muslims even if islam isn't the center of their ideology you know it's it's a part of it and and they present themselves as believers so you can't simply wipe out the religious landscape right you can't simply uh, destroy the mosques uh, or kill all the religious leaders, even if they are seen as a kind of opposition. So this gives religious leaders a little bit more power and a little bit more leeway because there are limits to what the um, the regime can do to them without, you know, while still looking like they are themselves good Muslims, right? Uh, I think if most political leaders in the Middle East want to avoid any kind of image where they might be seen as anti islam or anti-religion so this sort of boxes them in a little bit about you know in terms of what they can do to um to deal with opposition in the mosques which which again like you said gives makes the mosques into you know a sort of gives them a sort of unique status uh, where they can be used by the opposition in a way that say like a trade union couldn't be
0: yeah which goes to uh something that i really liked a lot in your book which was uh, your description of religion as being both an asset to the ruler as well as a threat. And, you know, that's very analog. The only other thing that, that really compares with that is the um, the role and the positioning of uh, soccer or football in the Middle East, <laughs> which is something I've written about extensively. Yeah. Uh, but, but it, you know, basically an, an institution that you cannot just simply shut down you you have to deal with it and that has advantages uh, but it's also a continuous potential threat
1: yes that's right uh so you know if you are a uh, political leader in the middle east um, on one hand um, if you can get people to believe that islam is on your side, right? (laughs) That, that, uh, that to be a good Muslim, you know, and to be religious, you have to sort of obey, um, the political leader, you know, and that this is legitimately, you know, religiously legitimate political leadership that needs to be obeyed. That's a very powerful tool. On the other hand, you have to be careful, right? Because if you sort of present yourself as, um, as a believer and you discuss how important it is to be a believer and how important it is to be a good Muslim and, and all of these things, but you don't necessarily control the religious landscape of the country. Well, you know, you might have someone leave your speech and say, yes, it's very important to be a, you know, a believer and to be a good Muslim. And they go to a mosque and they see a religious authority sitting up there, you know, Islamic authority. And, and, uh, and that person says, well, that political, this political leader we have, is not a good Muslim. And uh, actually, to be a good Muslim, you have to oppose uh, this political leader. So in that sense, it can be very dangerous. So they're they're often put into this kind of structural uh, dilemma, where on one hand, they want to use religion, it's very good, but they have to be very careful about how they do so, because it could blow up in their face, right? If if the religious leadership of the country, the religious authorities in the country, sort of oppose them and say, "Yes, it is. The, he's right. Uh, being religiously being, you know, religiously legitimate is very good and it's uh, essential." But he's not religiously legitimate. You know, this becomes very problematic. So um, many leaders in, in the Middle East, in Iraq in particular, which is what I spent, I think, most of the time in this book discussing. Um, many, many of the political leaders spend a lot of time trying to control. The religious landscape to make sure that that doesn't happen. If you want to use religion, um, if you want to use religion actively in your political ideology and if you're an authoritarian leader, um, the most important thing to do, uh, more than simply making the right speeches or, or you know using the right terms, which is often what scholarship focuses on, Western scholarship, because that's what we have access to, um, more important than than those speeches and that that rhetoric is is controlling uh, the religious landscape. Of the country,
0: which really takes us to um, another part of your book, where you talk about um, the evolving relationship, you, uh, if you will, between uh, uh, between Iraq and, and the regime in Iraq and um, a Saudi form of, of religion, whether that being Wahhabism or or uh, Salafism, which in many ways served the regime's purpose up until the uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990, primarily because one major school of thought within uh, that more more ultra-conservative uh, interpretation of Islam was ob- obedience to the ruler. But then, of course, when um, when the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iraq broke down because of the invasion of Kuwait. Um, that very literal interpretation of Islam became a major, a major target for the, uh, for the, for Saddam Hussein and the Iraqis.
1: Um, yeah, that's right. To an extent, um, in the nineteen eighties, there were a lot of Salafis or Wahhabis. Um, that supported saddam not so much because they supported saddam but because they hated khomeini and they hated the She's and, and um in iran um and you know or they were sponsored by saudi arabia who felt threatened by by the iranian regime and the iranian revolution um and the baathists had a an interesting take on this on one hand they wanted their help they needed their help actually um and they liked all these bad things that they were saying about about Iran, these Salafis. Um, on the other hand, uh, they were a bit worried oftentimes that these Salafis were going to be too sectarian. Um, and they were going to sort of inflame sectarian tensions in, in, inside of Iraq, which would have been a disaster or, you know, Uh, especially at that time, but at any time they would have been very problematic, but especially at that time when you're fighting the Iran-Iraq war and, you know, most of your foot soldiers are are Shis. So they took their support. Um, They liked that they were getting support, but you see them discussing, you know, that they need to be careful uh, aligning with these groups. They have to make clear that, you know, Khomeini is bad and this Iranian Shiism is bad, but there is an authentic and legitimate uh, Shiism that's practiced by Arab Iraqis, and they, they can't attack that. Um, and you see not so much the international groups that are supporting Saddam during the war, but inside of Iraq, you see religious leaders who have maybe a, a more hardline inclination towards the Shis, having to skirt that line very carefully. You know, they'll bash Khomeini and bash you know, everything about Shiism without actually saying Shiism, uh, and then at some point say, well, and of course there is a legitimate Shiism that's practiced by our, you know, Iraqi, uh, Arab brothers here. Um, and the regime was able to, you know, was willing to put up with that, uh, until, uh, until, as you said, 1990, when it became, you know, clear that, uh, Saudi Arabia and by extension Wahhabis and Salafis, um, were just an enemy at that point. And they had to do a lot of, as you call it, it as a euphemism, of how housekeeping, <laughs> you know, where they cleaned up a lot of these um, Salafi mosques uh, and they weeded out a lot of Salafi and Wahhabi leaders um, that uh, had made their way into the sort of regimes institutions uh, throughout the 1980s. Um, they went through and, and sort of, Purged all those people uh, in 1990, 1991.
0: As you were going through the uh, Iraqi archives, uh, did you see any discussion of how Salafis responded uh, after 1990? Were they, were, were there covert efforts by the Saudis, or did, was it the total? Was the ability of the regime to cut them out fairly, uh, fairly absolute?
1: So it's interesting. Um, no, the, re- the regime couldn't cut them out, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, these are documents of an of a, of a authoritarian regime, so you have to read them in a certain way. They never say, oh, yes, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the Salafis are, are actually uh, winning, or not just winning, but they're doing well you know, and they're gaining in strength, you know, you, you won't, you won't hear them say that, but what we do see them doing in the 1990s is, uh, there's a lot more discussion of them having to fight, uh, Salafis and having to do anti-Wahhabi operations. Um, and you know, the more they are discussing anti-Wahhabi operations, you sort of get the sense that, they're doing that for a reason, and the reason is that Wahhabis are sort of uh, gaining strength underground. There are instances where you see you know, there's support by Saudi Arabia for for these groups at least the regime is alleging that, you know, in in the records, right? They find tape recorders and sermons and things like this being smuggled across the border Uh, you see religious leaders that um, take refuge in Saudi Arabia you often find, you know somebody they're investigating somebody and his brother was some sort of a hobby and he, he took refuge in, in saudi arabia and he's alleged to be you know financially helping his bill or, or or something uh, like that you also see an increase in um in rhetoric and i guess in in tr- when they're training the Bathists in the 1990s um they're trying to tell them you know don't don't uh, don't badmouth the she's too much, right? Um, or not too much, not at all, right? So if we're going to do these operations against in the in, in the south, you know, we can't be using this anti-Shi sectarian language, which is often associated with uh, Wahhabism or, or whatnot, right? Which tells you, on one hand, you know, the regime was was against this type of sectarianism, but that it must have existed, right? If they felt the need to, um, if they felt the need to to say it. To their to their people, that means they must have been. Some of these people must have been doing this. Um, so you can see, in that sense, that there is a sort of uptick uh, in the 1990s um, on Wahhabi influences and Salafi influences um, in, in Iraq, even though the regime is trying to fight against it.
0: You mentioned uh, Russian earlier, and if I recall correctly, you also talked a little bit about China, and you said. And you did that comparatively, saying that essentially uh, it was a much um, narrower ideological gap in Iraq than it was in countries like Russia and China.
1: Yes, that's right. So, you know, obviously, uh, in, in Russia and the USSR, uh, especially early on, and uh, in Maoist China, right, and communist China, both of these countries are communist, and both of them were officially atheists, right? So um, they both had to come to terms with religious influences in their country. Uh, they both talk about it openly. Mao talks about it openly, and um, and the Soviets talk about it. At first, when they come to power, they're going to simply eliminate religion. They find out that they can't do that. Uh, That's not, you know, the people just simply continue to believe what they're going to believe. And they, you know, they resist the regime, uh, both regimes on those levels. So both of those regimes had to sort of fashion a version of religion that was uh, somehow acceptable to them. You know, in the Soviets, they had these, they were called Red Priest, um, which were a sort of weird organization that combined atheistic communism with Christianity in, in, in a way that they, you know, uh, uh, doesn't seem to make much sense, but that's what they did. Um, but this was a sort of ideological concession by the regime to even acknowledge the importance of, of religion. Um, for the Baptists, on the other hand, you know, since the beginning, uh, they had religious components of their ideology, you know, even it's interesting uh, people assume that because the founder one of the inf- intellectual founders at least of the bath party Michelle Aflak, was a was a Christian that they must have been somehow uh, ambivalent about Islam or uh, even anti Islam which is completely not the case I mean Aflak has a number of essays where he writes in the 1940s and 1950s about um, about Islam and its role in the bath party and he and he understood Islam as being uh, a central component of Arab culture, right? And of, uh, of Arab society. And he looked at Muhammad as being a sort of Arab prophet that was, uh, preaching a message that was applicable to all Arabs, even Christians, uh, even Christians like himself. Um, uh, so the Ba'athists always had a positive view of Islam. Um, and so when they had, when they came to power and they had to sort of, um, make amends with the religious belief of, of the people uh, the, the gap that they had to, you know, any any sort of ideological concessions they had to make were were, were much smaller than it, than so you know an atheistic regime like the Soviet Union would have to make. Uh, they might have had to you know smooth some edges here of their ideology to make it fit with the with the social realities of Iraq. They didn't have to wholesale change their ideology in any way to accommodate uh, religious belief.
0: Um. Another thing that struck me in your book was that you described what you, I think, called an overlap between uh, the way Saddam Hussein was trying to neutralize or harness religion uh, and, relig- and and counter-religious threats uh, with uh, either Western or, or Mao Zedong's uh, uh, counterinsurgency strategies and in the Western case, particularly, you uh, you noted the the French uh, uh, counter uh, insurgency strategist David Galula. Uh
1: Yes, it's actually it, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, I actually teach now at the uh, in the Navy War College's program at the Naval Postgraduate School, and you know, we teach about counterinsurgency at different times. And uh, if you read the, uh, the you know the famous counterinsurgency manual that was created by Petraeus, you know, it talks about Galula and, you know, Galula is, is very, uh, central in in this. Um, and, but if you read Galula himself, um, he talks about Mao, right? He's talking about Mao. He's taking his ideas from Mao, which makes sense because that's where, you know, the French picked this, uh, counterinsurgency up when they were fighting in Indochina, uh, against Maoist, um, or people who were being supported by uh by the chinese right so they sort of take those ideologies turn them on their head and uh and, and try to you know use maoism to you know to fight fire with fire right uh the American picks up on this now of course we can't you know uh a uh an american doctrine you yeah. know doctrine that was talking about Mao wouldn't make much sense, right? It would, it would, not that it would make, wouldn't make much sense. It just wouldn't be politically viable, right? This is not a winning combination if you're going to go to your superiors and say, we should do what Mao did, right, uh, in the American military. Uh, but we do adopt a lot of Maoist ideas filtered through Galula, right? Um, so that that's sort of a, an interesting thing. Uh, now, Saddam liked Mao, right? Uh, he used to quote Mao, the counter, Iraqi counterinsurgency manuals, which we have now. Um, you know, discuss Mao. They use Maoist thinking, fish in water. Is a famous, you know, Mao discussed counterinsurgency. You know, insurgents as as uh, as fish in water. You know, society being the water, and and, uh, and and the insurgents being the fish, right? And Saddam used that in the same way that sort of Galula did right uh and by extension the u.s is right which is that if you want to catch the insurgents it's not about fighting them themselves it's it's about you know transforming society right from from the ground up uh you know depriving those fish of the water that they need um to survive now the u.s and uh saddam hussein Carried out this idea very differently, right? But uh, it, it's interesting that it was actually based on on a lot of the same ideas. So when Saddam wanted to um, was dealing with insurgents, as he was uh, many times during his uh, during his presidency, he used this Maoist ideas, which was to get rid of the context in which insurgents can operate, right? So you have to control the religious landscape, you have to control the religious institutions, and you sort of deprive any kind of religiously motivated insurgents from the water that they need to survive and to thrive. Um, When the U.S. adopted uh, its counterinsurgency plan under Petraeus uh, in 2006, uh, it did a lot of the same things. Not as violently, you know, not even close uh, to what Saddam did, but but the theory... uh, was was the same, right? That you need to basically create a society uh, and create a social context in which insurgents don't can't operate. Um, um, so it, it's a, it's a sort of strange, ironic uh, overlap, I guess. That you know, when the when the U.S. was applying this counterinsurgency idea, they were they were applying a lot of the same ideas that Saddam had applied, and and they were both getting their ideas from Mao.
0: I want to come back to the beginning of, um, of our conversation and, in a sense, to how you got into all of this. You also described in some detail how when the United States invaded Iraq in 2003 and effective, effectively took over the governing of the country, they simply didn't have the kind of infrastructure that Saddam Hussein had built or the intelligence uh to deal with uh with religion
1: um yes that's that's right um i, I mean when the us took over uh, iraq there was a number of assumptions uh it seems to me and, and you know, obviously a lot of, a lot of this is going to have to be played out once uh us archives from this this time open up but uh at least from from the outside from from what it looks like uh, the US had a lot of assumptions going into 2003 about Iraq, uh, and about the nature of state society uh, relations in, in Iraq. Um, that turned out to be false. The idea that Saddam was simply a tyrant who wasn't really exerting any sort of social control, they had lost control over large sections of, of the population in Iraq. Uh, turns out to be false, I think if you look in the the Iraqi archives, uh, he was exerting control and he had uh, intelligence officers and bathists uh, on the ground in very robust ways. and that's how he was was ruling the country. Um, and when the. US went in, the idea was, well Saddam isn't really exerting any social control. so if we just knock him off, then you know we, we can also just rule it's kind of from the top down without having to exert any kind of social control, because society is already kind of there at an equilibrium uh, without outside pressures on it. Uh, That turned out not to be the case, because Saddam was exerting social control uh, through his intelligence officers and security officers on the ground and through the Ba'ath Party. Uh, And when the U.S. went in, it simply didn't have that. Uh, And this was very disruptive. It was impossible, I think, uh, in hindsight, for the U.S. to rule without uh, having people on the ground. Uh, I don't know what the solution would have been, but that's just simply to, you know, not people on the ground. People really integrated into uh, Iraqi social institutions like religion, right, to understand what was happening in the mosques. Uh, Because Saddam, you know, especially during the 1990s, as I mentioned earlier, they were constantly having to fight sort of what you call, you know, radical radical organizations that were trying to infiltrate these mosques, whether it be Salafi, uh, some sort of militant jihadis, there was also um, Iranian groups that were coming in to the, to the south and trying to penetrate uh, to Shi'i mosques, right? And Saddam knew what was going on and uh, he had intelligence agents uh, in, the, in, in place and he could spot these people and weed them out right away, uh, neutralize them uh, right away. The U.S. simply didn't have that, right? So um, if... Somebody got up and started saying all sorts of radical things, uh, violent things, uh, you know. Um, the U.S. didn't even know it was happening, uh, let alone having someone there to go and be able to stop it. The,
0: the, 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 the American notion that Saddam didn't have control, was that in any way influenced by events in 1991 when the Americans forced uh, Iraqi troops out of Kuwait and then there was a moment where it seemed that uh, President Do- George W. Bush at the time was encouraging a revolt and you had the Shiite uprising, which subsequently was squashed. But that, that, I, that notion that the moment you uh, loosen the control, suddenly this, this opposition and, uh, uh, explodes and therefore there was no social control really.
1: Yeah, I, yes, I think it was it was partly um, it was partly uh, due to that, and partly due to the the repercussions of that, uh, or the events that came out of that, which were that there were a lot of Shi exiles um, that were organizing in places like London and in some sense, you know, the United States, uh, and they were trying to gain favor um, with Western regimes, right, to, to come to their aid and to help them. And they presented a narrative uh, of themselves, they presented a narrative of the regime as being very sectarian, but also of not having any sort of influence or control or being completely illegitimate among, uh, especially the Shi populations um, in the South. So this narrative, I think, sort of took hold, right? Because the regime wasn't really letting people in to, to do real research um, in Iraq on the ground. Right, uh, and most people speak to reporters, right, or academics, but the Shi'i opposition, which did have a certain, I would say, uh, narrative that wasn't necessarily, um, wasn't correct. It wasn't. It wasn't a good narrative um, of the regime having lost control. They were very influential uh, in shaping uh, Western ideas about Iraq and American ideas um, about Iraq because that narrative was very useful for them. Uh, but I think it turns out to be wrong.
0: Sam, we could go on for quite some time yet, but we've taken up a lot of your time already. Um, what I'd like to ask you, uh, finally is where, where do you go from now? What are you working on?
1: So I'm going to stay working with these, uh, Iraqi records um most of I just find it fascinating to sort of look behind the curtain. I found when I was doing research on this issue of religion in Iraq, I found an interesting organization in the records, which no one has really written about, um or even knows it exists, I think, outside of, you know, people who are actually in the regime. It was called the Iraqi Bath Party outside of Iraq. It changed its name several times o- over 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 the years. Um but it was generally an organization that was set up to control and to manipulate and to instrumentalize politically the Iraqi diaspora around the world. Um, As the diaspora is sort of exploding or ballooning in in different places across Europe and America uh, throughout the 1980s and 1990s, the regime sets up branches of the Iraqi Ba'ath Party in different countries around the world. So there's actually 69 different countries uh, where, where they where they do this. So it's, it's quite extensive. Um, and they try to sort of replicate the authoritarian structures that they have in Iraq in other places, you know, use violence, but also uh, carrots and sticks, right, so also giving money to people and giving help to people uh, to get them, to get Iraqis in the diaspora to sort of, do the right things according to what the regime thinks are the right things. And those right things are to help them, you know, get their message out, propaganda, um, spy on other Iraqis, you know, spy, give general information about uh, the states and societies that they, um, that they live in. Uh, And I find a lot of, you know, it's just fascinating to see how this works on a sort of international, transnational landscape, right? It's it's sort of authoritarianism outside of authoritarian, outside of the borders of a state, which is interesting. But it's also uh, I think more relevant to sort of broader broader trends in politics that we see today from places like Russia or China um, which are trying to use um, their diasporas, especially China, uh, to achieve political goals, right? Um, To get their message out, to infiltrate certain parts of different societies um and it's a it's a really difficult tale i think for especially for a lot of iraqis uh and i imagine by extension you know chinese or or russians or whoever else uh, who think they're leaving a regime behind um and want to sort of move on with their lives and, and and you know integrate into their new societies and be productive members of society and they still are within reach of uh of these regimes, uh, and these regimes can, can reach out and touch them in very violent ways, not only for them, but they're for their families, uh, homes. So, uh, and it's something that's not really discussed. Um, especially now we, you know, since the Arab spring broke out, there's been a number of, of refugees, you know, that from the Arab world that have made their way to Europe and not many, unfortunately to the United States, but, um, you know, made their way around the world. And, and we mostly discuss where, you know, we've, we, we worry that there might be terrorists or we worry, you know, on one hand there's people who worry about that, you know, from the security aspect and there are other people who worry about it from the humanitarian aspect, you know, there's people who are drowning in these boats or, or whatnot. But after they get to whatever country they're going to and they, they sort of settle in, uh, we generally forget about them. But regimes like Saddam's uh, don't forget about them. And I doubt that if, if Assad stays in power that he's going to forget about them. Um you know, and they have means to to reach out to these people and to try to control them, manipulate them uh, in ways that are politically beneficial uh, for the home regime. And uh, uh, it's something that really hasn't received enough enough attention. Uh, and I think it's uh, it's very interesting. So um, I've been spent the last few years, I guess, starting to dig through the files on this Iraqi bath party outside of the United States to see where it fits um in the larger political history of iraq during this period right um broader because they played a, a central role in saddam's saddam's strategies to sort of break the sanctions down in the 1990s um to break out of the isolation that was sort of imposed on them diplomatically and economically following uh the gulf war so you know there's a lot there i'm not sure exactly where i'm going to take it yet but that's uh that's the direction I'm
0: moving. No, indeed. As you were speaking, I was thinking of the uh, United Front in China, which is uh, very active in trying to counter certain Chinese groups, but on the other hand, enlist Chinese diaspora and ethnic Chinese communities as lobbyists and supporters of the of the regime. Um, in any case, uh, oops, sorry. In any case, it sounds like a fascinating project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and wish you all the best and good luck. All right. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being
1: on.